0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and welcome to this week's podcast. We're uh, excited to have Dr. Michael Hartney with us. Um, Dr. Hartney is an assistant professor at Boston College uh, in the political science department, um, where he also looks at issues around K-12 schools. Uh, for this year, he's a national fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And he is just out with a, an article, that uh, a paper that's um, been making the rounds in media, so you might have seen it, called Politics, Markets, and Pandemics. Public education's response to COVID nineteen, and that's along with Leslie Finger from the University of North Texas. So, Michael, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's good to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me today.
0: So, this is obviously um, a topic that's on everyone's mind with COVID and uh, and the move to remote learning, and obviously so many things um, going on. So. Kind of before we dig into the, the report, just what was what were you thinking about in terms of COVID and schools and politics um, over the course of the last seven months, and what kind of led you to look at um, the issues in the paper?
1: So one of the things is as negative as COVID has been for all of the obvious reasons. Um, as a researcher. It really presents a unique opportunity. Um, It's almost, I would compare it in in many ways, but on a nationwide scale, to what we saw after Hurricane Katrina devastated the New Orleans community and the New Orleans public school system in which uh, the entire system there migrated uh, from a traditional schooling system to a choice-based system. These are really um, unusual moments in which some sort of, exogenous force or act of God comes along that really challenges the status quo in public education. And in many ways, COVID has done just that. And so it's this phenomenal opportunity to kind of step back and assess how K-12 education is able to respond. Uh, And we can learn a lot of things. Um, So my colleague and I were really interested in a very basic question, which was, how are the nation's k-12 public school districts going to respond or how are they going to respond to start off the school year right so everybody in in march pretty much agreed that schools needed to close and i think about 99 percent of them uh public private parochial you name it across the country shut down when the pandemic arrived and we don't have a great sense of uh, how learning operated for that two-month period, but we know that it was it, it varied tremendously. Um, and so we're trying to get a, a handle on that short-term period. But I think more important, and what we looked at in the paper was, after some time to bend the, the curve, so to speak, uh, and to sort of assess how much COVID affects children, Uh, Then the fall came along and you had some, you know, 13,000 school districts, which had to make a decision. How are we going to educate kids? And then you had a private system, parochial schools, uh, secular private schools that also had to determine how are they going to proceed in the fall? And so we got to step back and kind of evaluate what drove that decision. And so anyone who's been paying attention probably um, has a sense that there were three modes. Three, three primary modes in which districts elected to start off the fall school year. Uh, they either elected to go back to business as usual and have kids come into school five days a week uh, with traditional in-person learning. Um, about half of the school districts across the country um, elected to have a hybrid system where some kids would get some in-person learning some of the time, but a large portion of education would be delivered entirely online Um, where students would remain at home. And then there's a third bucket where school districts, including some of the largest ones, in fact, across the country, still, as of this time of us speaking, have yet to come up with a plan to get kids back into the classroom, and they're in a fully remote setup. So we were interested in trying to determine why. Why is it that districts varied so much in terms of how they started the school year? And so we sort of started with the... inclination that the issue would be driven by public health considerations. So we gathered a variety of indicators that measured just how acute the COVID pandemic had been in a local community across the country. Um, But we really found very inconclusive and very inconsistent evidence that the model of learning that districts chose was related to the intensity of a pandemic in a community. Instead, we tended to find that the two biggest factors driving what districts did was district size, so very large districts. And unfortunately, the districts where most of the children in the United States are educated, including most of the uh, low-income families, uh, more students of color, were likely to live in school districts that have remained closed to this day. Um, So size was the big the one of the biggest factors. But the other one that really surprised us was that partisanship. Uh, We just came out of an election and it turns out that despite the fact that the nation's school boards are um, are governed by mostly nonpartisan sort of lay local officeholders that the biggest factor that predicted whether a school district would offer remote only instruction or in-person learning or hybrid uh, was the percentage of the local electorate that was either Republican or Democratic. So that was kind of uh, like a, a big surprise to us that, that it, it appears that um, school reopenings have been very wedded to politics rather than public health indicators.
0: That's great. Uh, so a lot to follow up on there. Um, first, really quick, you mentioned um, the three buckets, the in-person, remote, and hybrid. You mentioned about 50% were hybrid. Do you know the breakdown of the in-person and remote just off the, you know, off the top of your head generally? Yeah. I mean,
1: I want to um, just also convey that uh, there's been some dynamic movement over time. So it's of not course, to say of that course. you haven't had some districts open and close, but about a quarter in each other bucket. So about okay. a quarter fully in-person, a quarter fully remote and 50% hybrid, but I really want to emphasize that the 25% that have been fully remote uh, are the largest districts. So even though about 50% are hybrid, those aren't the biggest districts. Those aren't the districts that are serving most of the kids. So most kids have not gotten back into the classroom.
0: Right. Great. Um, So the other first question, I just was, uh, you mentioned uh, New Orleans after Katrina and kind of these big big events that can happen. And I think um, there are lots of people in education who who see this, they'll also say these things like, it's a challenge and it's a crisis, but it's an opportunity in terms of how we think about how we deliver education. And um, are you seeing other sectors of society being impacted to that degree in the same way? I mean, maybe the work world or or socializing or those types of things. But in terms of like, uh, I'm thinking about this in terms of a big societal shift that everything kind of gets, um, you know, upended and then things don't go back to normal. Are you seeing that widespread or do you think there's something unique or particular about schools?
1: I think that what's unique about schools, and this is something that is obvious, but we don't really internalize it most of the time. Uh, And that is the fact that public schools or public school districts as agencies of government, we think of them. we think of schools as places that kids go and get educated and that most of the decisions that are made in regard to what that looks like and how it's done are in some way, you know, pretty strongly related to what's best for kids. But the reality, unfortunately, is that public education has to please a very diverse set of political stakeholders. So parents and students are just one of the stakeholders uh, in in public education. You have, you know, taxpayers, homeowners, school employees, uh, community members who are retired or who don't have kids in the school system. And we've always known that, but I think that COVID really reveals it even further in the sense that, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but if you think about the private school system in comparison to the public school system, the sort of leap to reopening and getting back to quote unquote normal requires that you get consensus from so many more actors in the public setting than in the private setting. So whereas in the private setting, really for a private school to be able to reopen, all they need is legal authority to be able to do so, and enough families that are interested in enrolling their children for in-person learning. In contrast, the public school system has to do all sorts of things. And so to give probably the best example here would be, they have to come to some sort of agreement with their local teachers union um, about what reopening will look like, about what safety will look like. And you know, going into the summer is a time in which A lot of school districts have to iron out a collective bargaining agreement. Those bargaining agreements have expired, and in many cases, they have to come up with a new one. So there's just a lot more. There's a lot more that has to come together. Particularly, and I think this is why we've seen the really large districts not open back up. uh, Is that the larger the district, the more heterogeneous the set of stakeholders are, who all have sort of different motives and different uh, desires before reopening can happen. In contrast, either a smaller school district or like I said, a private school system really doesn't have to please as many audiences before it can open back up. So I think that's what makes education unique, perhaps, from some other sectors, whether it's real estate, private sector jobs, what have you, is you just have a bigger group of political stakeholders that have to be satisfied before you can get back to normal. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. so first I have a little
0: point of maybe um challenge because um, the first part of the report you talk about how public schools have not um have really relatively been separated from the partisan divides in the country um and you mentioned a little bit of that in terms of how the boards are elected and that kind of thing but I lived through common core with with Barack Obama and um and that whole push for Race to the Top, which was the federal legislation and, and the incentives around that. And I can tell you, I was a superintendent at the time and it was extremely political and people's position on Common Core, I think even to today is probably framed more around politics than around whether it's an effective you know, set of standards, et cetera. And, and then I just think about, we've had a lot of teacher strikes um, in LA. We had one just a year and a half ago uh, about uh, that I think really fell down on some um, political lines and maybe not the national partisanship that you were talking about, but I do feel like Common Core might be something. So I don't know if you had thoughts on that or, uh, or, or uh, an opinion either way.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So it certainly is the case that schools have always been uh, sites of political contestation, and it's also true that that contestation has not always been devoid of partisan lines or partisan cleavages. But I think that some of what's different here, well, there, there are two things that are that are different. One is that a lot of the or several of the examples that you spoke about, and I could name things, um, you know, like school choice or teacher evaluation. Although the although sort of partisans at the national level, you know, you think Republicans tend to be more enthusiastic about school vouchers or uh, charter schools. Um, although maybe charter schools, it's a bit more of a mixed bag between Democrats or Republicans. Even though that's true, um, the big difference here is that we're not talking about an issue that's sort of gone through the partisan grist mill. Uh, The issue here is just a very sort of basic technocratic one, which is, is John, Johnny or Jane going to go back to school like they always do in the first week of September across the country? So I think that's one thing that sets this apart is now we're sort of observing partisan politics infiltrate what is kind of a very it's really no different than whether you know, the city of Brookline where I am here today decides to plow the street when it snows uh, this winter. Nobody would really think about that as a partisan issue where they might think about, you know, the pension system for city employees as a union issue, and that might have partisan overtones. So I think that's one of the big issues here. And then the other issue is that some of the examples you cited, you know, um, I would characterize what we observe is Politics has always pervaded local education, but it's typically been interest group politics with the teachers unions being the leading interest group and then oftentimes engaging uh, in debate with other other organized groups, whether it's parents or, you know, maybe it's conservative parents about sex ed curriculum or something like that, teaching of evolution, um, so on and so forth. But what's different here is that you have, predictably, the unions are taking the position we would expect about wanting to safeguard their members and push back on quick reopenings. But the other dimension here is that within the just the general public, whether you're a Democrat or Republican has really driven your thinking about whether schools should reopen. So in a sense, it's like there are almost like three groups. You have the unions. And then you have the public, but the public's divided into two pots. And so the unions, for the time being, seem to have an have an alliance with uh, partisan, uh, mostly Democrats here who've been skeptical. And then uh, Republican voters have been much more open to school reopenings. Of course, I want to stress that that could change. We just had an election. And to some extent, that partisan divide may have been driven by the fact that President Trump, both a controversial figure, but also came out in early July and just really nationalized and politicized the issue of reopenings.
0: Right. So, and and just to clarify too, I mean, part of it is it's, it's kind of a pox on both your houses a little bit in terms of you might have, um, I'm just going to call them Republican districts and, uh, right. um, and Democratic districts, Republican districts opening when they maybe shouldn't be opening, right? When, that, when, exactly. we, when the health indicators said not to, and you might have Democratic districts saying not to go back when they might. might. So I also want to make sure I'm clear because obviously we, we want to make sure we're, we're balanced here, that, but both seem to be doing, not make, not necessarily making the decision based on the
1: science, but more on political leanings. No, that's exactly right. So it's it's not that anyone here, no one here is really sort of, um, uh, you know, um, looking at the public health indicators first, or on average, it doesn't look that way. There, There's plenty of sort of uh, strong Donald Trump counties that have very high COVID case rates that have been open for business with in-person learning from day one, and public health factors suggest that maybe that was too aggressive, but then you also have lots of very strong anti-Trump or Democratic districts that have very low COVID case rates which haven't even discussed a reopening. And I like to compare this sort of to Europe because there's this big debate here that our leaders should follow the science on coronavirus. Um, And yet, you know, you think of a place like Germany where Merkel has a science background herself or you think of France, and these are countries that sort of get a lot of praise Uh, for doing things that we in the United States haven't done, that everything's been so politicized here. But if you look over there, as Europe is now experiencing this, this surge in cases, they've absolutely been willing to put on the table Um, lockdowns for various segments or sectors of society, but they've both said we are not going back to closing schools. Schools need to remain open. The cost to students being out of the classroom far exceeds the public health concerns for those students um, in terms of the virus. So one question I would ask is why is it the case that you know in the United States, in Montgomery County, Maryland, the bars are open But the schools aren't, whereas in Europe, you know, the bars are closing in response to COVID, but the schools are remaining open. And my answer there is just that the way that public education functions in the United States is so um, uh, connected to politics uh, that, like I said at at the outset, that you have to please so many diverse constituency groups that it creates the opportunity um, to get gridlock and, and we can't get out of our way here. So we're going to get to the private
0: school, Catholic school piece, because that's important for our listeners. But just you raise that point, And I think that um, that goes to uh, a piece I saw in Ed Week from Dr. Ashish Jha, who's the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. And he was making the case that schools need to be bolder um, and kind of weighed this idea of damage to students who are not going back and i guess the the question i have and he actually raised that exact point which is why i'm raising it now that you know you've got these higher risk entities like bars and restaurants that are open, and yet we're keeping schools closed. And and he was just saying the science doesn't really bear that out, that those are higher risk factors. And on another quick side note, we've talked to a lot of Catholic schools around the country that have opened, and they've had very little, if any, transmission within the school community, but it tends to be the activities outside of school. So the parties on the weekends or the traveling sports teams and those types of things that might lead to an outbreak. But because the largest districts, you talk about the largest districts being in that remote category um, and they're serving so many students that that's why it's kind of a significant issue. We also know the disadvantaged students you know, those who, who, who are, are academically behind, those who come from disadvantaged backgrounds or, or, or certain risk factors, that that gap uh, might be just widening and widening and widening while we're in this remote um, environment. So did you look at that at all in terms of the n- types of students that could be potentially uh, impacted by this, by the politics really of, of whether to reopen or not?
1: Yeah, um, we didn't look at student level data. So some of what I'll say is a bit speculative, but I, I think it's grounded in in sort of knowledge that we already have about who who is able to choose schools and who is not able to choose schools under normal conditions, which would then sort of these inequalities would be exacerbated in the current setup. So if you just think of a typical middle class family um who goes to a public school system and i'm thinking you know it's very easy for me to think of this a good friend of mine that i went uh to college with has a couple of youngsters who are you know at the age where they're learning how to read and they're in the Ann Arbor public school system in Michigan Um, And Ann Arbor has not gotten it together. There's no plan currently to get uh, all students back in the classroom. And so I think of someone like my friend, you know, he works a a white collar job, both him and his wife and his wife works from home. And so they're able to be at home. In fact, in their case, they actually have an au pair. So they're able to provide um, their children with good oversight, with good supplementary materials, either to make the online learning more rich Uh, or to supplement it afterward with private tutoring, with extra resources. And so for a family like his family, they're probably going to be able to be okay. But for families who the head of household, say, works in the service industry or works in an essential job where they actually have to go to work but don't have the funds to supplement, those children are going to experience a large degree of learning loss. And I, I saw a paper the other day, not in the United States, but that confirmed as much out of the Netherlands that low-income students have experienced a much steeper uh, fall in terms of keeping up um with their learning than their affluent counterparts, which is just common sense here. Um, And it sort of replicates when you think about the school choice options as well. Like in many ways, it will be interesting to see whether states that provide choice opportunities, either voucher programs or that have more uh, charter schools, for example, um, whether if, if you're in a state that provides more of those opportunities for lower income families, whether some of that learning loss will be mitigated, but you know unfortunately, the reality is there' are just too few of those schools for all of the students um, who are um, from disadvantaged backgrounds that the likelihood of, of having enough supply for those students is very low. and so I just think it's important it's kind of like thinking through all of the different types of families that experience the pandemic. they're not experiencing it in the same way, and that's true for their children in terms of their education as well yeah um.
0: So uh, let's, I I was just going to comment too that McKinsey, I saw McKinsey did some research on that learning loss too. And I think... um One of our uh, corporate partners, uh, NWEA, which does the the map testing is coming out with an update on their paper. I think they had a paper out last April. They have a paper coming out in December to really look at this issue from an assessment perspective, which is important. Um, Let's talk a little bit, because private schools also impacted uh, what you found as well as as far as exerting pressure, um, perhaps on districts uh, about what to do. And I thought Montgomery County, you've already alluded to them, provided a really interesting example in the paper. Um, and so maybe just talk a little bit about what happened in Montgomery County and, and how that, um, that plays a role in, in what you found.
1: Right. So in Montgomery County, uh, just to give listeners who might not be very familiar with it, we're talking about a county here that's large. Um, we're talking about a county that is politically um, very left of center. So the county, I want to say this is off the top of my head, but I think The county went 75% for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So not a Trump place. Um, But Montgomery County is also a very affluent county. Um, And so it has anywhere from 130 to 140 private schools in the county. But it also has what's considered a pretty strong public school district. So you have a lot of families there that probably could afford to choose a private school, but at the same time, don't necessarily have to. Um, because the public schools are also strong. Um, so very early on this summer, the district struggled to come to an agreement um with its teachers' union about what reopening would look like. And, you know, I I haven't been a fly on the wall in, in the meetings, but you know, you can sort of put two and two together, and you're looking at a district where politically speaking, it didn't look like there would be a lot of pressure um on local officials to reopen the schools. Uh, And so they made the decision to come out very early on this summer and say, hey, we're not even going to talk about bringing students back to the classroom until February 2021. And I just want to emphasize what a dramatic statement that is uh, to listeners, because we're talking about around that time that Montgomery County said that. The New York Times did a survey of about 500 epidemiologists in which they asked, when would you be comfortable sending your kids back to school? And only one out of 10 of the epidemiologists said not until a vaccine comes out. So scientists at that time, remember, this is before Trump Trump politicized things in July. Scientists were saying, you know, even Democratic leaning, I'm assuming mostly, uh, scientists were saying, look, uh, we would put our kids back into school well before a vaccine comes out. But Montgomery County came out and said, no, we're going to hold off all the way into 2021. And so what happened was fairly predictable with the robust market of private schools, about 25% of families announced or called up Montgomery County Public Schools and said we're pulling our kids out. We're putting them in private schools. And about uh, and there was also an 1,800% increase in the in the number of families telling Montgomery County Public Schools that they were going to take their kids out and go to homeschooling. And so what what you had happen then was the county health director uh, issued an order that said all private schools in Montgomery County would also have to shut until February 2021, alongside the public school district, thereby sort of negating any of the worry that these students would actually be able to go and attend the private school that their parents were trying to access for in-person learning. And so that was the status quo until it got a lot of media coverage and folks said, look, this looks this looks like you're playing politics here and trying to protect uh, you know, your monopoly on providing education by not allowing private schools that would otherwise be open to in-person learning to open. And so Governor Larry Hogan, who I think for many has been kind of a hero here in that he's taken COVID seriously, he's not been sort of at all Trumpian in his sort of um, uh, treatment of the virus, but also looked at this as a nakedly political decision and decided to overturn it. And so the decision then became, um, I think, a sensible one, which was that private schools could potentially reopen to in-person learning uh, but they would have to uh, show their plan of how they would open and, and show that they could do so safely. So in other words, it would be taken on a case-by-case basis um, and follow the science. And so that's kind of what happened there. But it just sort of goes to illustrate um, that districts were keenly aware that if they continued to only offer remote learning, some fraction of parents were going to be dissatisfied and vote with their feet and, and leave the public system.
0: Yeah um you know and, and i guess talking about that too cuz so when um when when covid first hit one of the things that we were amazed about with catholic schools is how quickly they responded um to moving students to remote so we we talk about this that i and i think some of the announcements came down on a thursday or friday and monday or tuesday they were back up delivering remote instruction um and so that was um that just kind of indicated to us in some ways the the resiliency, the flexibility, the innovation, the creativity. And I'm wondering, because this is one of the things I think about in terms of Catholic schools in general, not even talking about COVID, but ways they can be more... Responsive, maybe to community needs in terms of not having those layers that you were talking about earlier in terms of bureaucracy or or whatnot to to imp, to uh, implement different things. Um, if we're not seeing that as being part of this as well, that I heard uh, one person who actually I would characterize as more left of center make a comment that the 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 teachers unions really haven't come to the table with innovative ideas about how to do. St- do this right. How to how to deliver things more? And I'm. This is not to cast aspersions on the, the the teachers unions, but I do think there's something about that natural inclination that we're in a competitive environment, and if we don't compete and we don't offer a product that's that parents are going to want to pay for to come to, we will be threatened. That that attitude might also um, be beneficial, if you will, uh, in this type of of uh, environment where that's required.
1: Yeah, I mean, you'd asked earlier about uh, other sectors as examples. And when you were speaking just now, it sort of made me think of the restaurant industry. Right. So like, Mm. you know, obviously the restaurant industry has to follow a lot of public health guidelines but there are also private entities that are interested in staying in business and and serving people food because people are hungry and wanna eat. Uh, and, and we've seen you know, remarkable innovation in that industry. I mean, even things as, as little as, we're gonna start serving people out in the street, we're gonna set up you know picnic tables and socially distancing, do whatever we need to do to, to try and provide the product that we were providing earlier. And I think again, like I, I like how you put it, not casting aspersions, this is just a fundamental difference Um, in the public versus the private sector. And so like one of my uh, intellectual heroes, James Q. Wilson, who is a very famous political scientist that wrote in all sorts of areas from education to crime to bureaucracy for many years at Harvard, um, uh, long ago observed this difference. And he said, you know, what it is, is that the public system adopts lots of rules and regulations that come with good intentions, right? So whether it's, you know, how... um, How cities are able to, um, how cities need to go through various processes before they put up a public contract so that there's not corruption, right? All of these different sort of red rule, things that we see as red tape and that slow us down, they, they come with a public purpose. But the downside is when you enter an era in which you need to be able to demonstrate agility or sort of innovative thinking as an organization, these things can absolutely cripple you. And so, you know, it's not it's not blaming the public system. It just it's sort of one of the things like it is what it is that for the public system to be able to get back up and running. It has to dot so many I's and cross so many T's, whereas in the private system, um, you know, they're able to come up with alternative means. And that, that's not just at the organizational level, that's at the employment level as well. So I would imagine that some of these is true in the charter school space that don't necessarily have rigid union contracts uh, that the school leaders can basically say, I mean, this happened at my institution at Boston College. We were told, look, this is how, you know, you need to figure out a way to deliver instruction synchronously to students and make it high quality and we're going to have to figure this out. Um and I think that that's something that, you know, when you're in a private sector organization, um the ability to navigate that with your employees looks very different than when you're in a sector with with government employees. It's it's no it's not that the 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 private school teachers are better than the public school teachers or vice versa. It's just that they're operating in fundamentally like sort of different um uh, environments. Yeah. So I want to close.
0: Um, obviously, I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, and this isn't obviously from your paper, but um, you mentioned we just had an election. So we have a new president. Uh, president like Biden is going to come in in January. And we also are in the midst of a big spike in coronavirus. I mean, it's, it's bigger than it ever was as far as over 100,000 cases a day and Um, and public health officials are saying we might have, you know, uh, more more deaths, obviously, tragically, uh, coming forward. Um, How do you think this issue um, will be looked at? Do you, do you think something is, I don't want to say as simple as, but uh, a new president or a new attitude or maybe even new, uh, a new approach, obviously, from the federal level, which I think people might welcome? Uh, do any of those things, do you see them impacting how decisions are made at that, uh, at that local level?
1: Yeah, I actually really do think that it may make a difference that is new leadership in Washington, but not so much because of any policy proposal that will be forthcoming, but more that um, if you dive into the public opinion uh, data here um, around citizens' attitudes about school reopenings, and I've started to monitor it pretty closely, if you go back to Prior to when President Trump sort of made this a big issue on the national stage, that ki- and what I mean by that is he came out and he just sort of like laid down: kids need to go back to schools and they have to go back to schools this fall, uh, because he is such a divisive and polarizing figure to half the country. Um, I think that where you stood on that issue, if someone asked you how sh- you know should we send kids back to school. For many Americans, we know, you know, there's tons of political science research that part we, the joke in, in my field is we say like partisanship is a heck of a drug. And um, I think that the degree to which people's partisanship and their feelings about Trump really cued their answer to that question about whether kids should go back to school in person, as Trump exits the stage, I do think that there's room for more um to see people on the political left begin to evaluate the question more about the policy itself and less about who's taking a position on it um and so just you know anecdotally, um I have a good friend who falls into this category as somebody um uh who's politically very um liberal uh but also has kids is in academia and has has herself grown very frustrated attending school board meetings and being told that, you know, you're a shill for Trump and the Republicans if you dare suggest that we really need to have a plan to get kids back into the classroom. So I think that as time moves on, hopefully the coalition um, of people who are trying to find a way to get kids back into school sometime this school year will grow larger. And I think that's an area where you'll see the president Um, And the president will also have cover from what you're seeing with Merkel and Macron and other leaders in Western Europe who are going to be keeping the schools open even during this surge. So I think we're headed there. I I just think it's going to take far longer than it probably should have.
0: Right, right.
1: Well, uh, Michael, uh, thank you so
0: much uh, for being with us. This has been a, a really uh, engaging and, and edifying conversation uh, in terms of, of this reality. Obviously, things that um, Catholic schools are, are, are trying to think about and, and, and many are trying to open and, and, uh, and do that, obviously, with safety as the, as the first and foremost concern for students and for families. Uh, and so just so grateful to you for, uh, for being with us today.
1: Well, thanks, Kevin. I had a good time talking with you.
0: That's Dr. Michael Hartney, uh, assistant professor at Boston College. And uh, the paper, again, which you can find online is Politics, Markets, and Pandemics, Public Education's Response to COVID-19. And that is uh, NCEA podcast for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time. God bless. (laughs)